Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. Arden Zwelling here with Ben Nicholson-Smith. Our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. Ben, MLB's trade deadline is behind us. Always an extremely busy week for uh, people such as uh, you and I in the cold light of day here on the morning of Wednesday, August 2nd. How are you feeling about what the Blue Jays were able to accomplish at this deadline? Well, I think they had two-thirds of a really good deadline, which is more than you can say for some teams. Hicks helps. I'm I'm putting this really concisely now, and we can obviously dive in. But I, I think, you know, Hicks helps. He's probably the best reliever available. DeYoung helps, especially in the context of Bichette and the uncertainty there. They had room for another bat. We've been talking about it for a long time now. They had interest in some bats. They pursued some bats. Didn't happen. So end of the day, it's a results business for players and also for front offices and just didn't happen. I still think they're a better team, but there was room to do more. Yeah, you can kind of lump everything together into one big trade with the St. Louis Cardinals if you're so inclined, right? And and even go back to the Genesis Cabrera acquisition and say it's Genesis Cabrera and Jordan Hicks coming in to uh, supplement a bullpen. It's Paul DeYoung coming in as a superlative shortstop defenders middle infield depth uh and cash as well to help cover uh you know de young salary this year and some future option buyouts in exchange for four minor leaguers and two of them in sam robersa and adam Kloffenstein, are intriguing prospects and i think guys who will probably be big leaguers at some point and guys who kind of profile as that up and down optionable back end starter depth and hey if things go really really well maybe more than that but that's kind of where they fit and then you get Sammy Hernandez a catcher who is very far off and Matt Swanson who is a relief pitcher prospect old for the level I couldn't tell you that I have a whole ton of intel on either Hernandez or Swanson to be honest with you but when you look at that just like in a vacuum as a trade Yeah, I mean, the Blue Jays got better, and they didn't sacrifice a whole ton from their future, and I think you can feel good about that. But then as soon as you pull out from that vacuum to the context of what this roster really needed, how this offense has performed to this point, how the organizational depth is looking, how uh, fortunate the Blue Jays have been on the health front, the opportunity that's in front of them, and the AL East and the American League wildcard race and just how much they have invested in this season and in winning now, I think it's fair if people think it's a little bit of a disappointing deadline. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that there was room for more. I think that was that was apparent for, for all to see. The Blue Jays themselves, I mean, they were trying to do more. They would have liked to do more. So it's not like they were looking at their team and thinking like, Oh, time to brush off our hands. Like our 26-man <laughs> roster is perfect. We are good to go. Yeah, they were trying to upgrade it. They had interest in Teoscar Hernandez, who ended up staying put with the Mariners. They talked to the Mets about their outfielders. Obviously, the Mets ended up preferring the offer that uh, the Brewers made for Marcana and that the Diamondbacks made for Tommy Pham. And, and so there didn't end up being traction there. The Blue Jays were in talks for other outfielders, other bats as well. It just didn't happen. Um, so, you know, there was an appetite to do a little bit more there and augment an offense that has, you know, certainly some struggling players. And I, I think it should be said, too, that, yes, it would have been great to add more offensively. And I think that we can look at this legitimately as a missed opportunity for the Blue Jays to do a little bit more. At the same time with that, 
you know, we're looking at an offense that includes some really underperforming guys like Dalton Varsho, like George Springer, who was in the midst of an 0 for 34 that's seen his OPS dip under 700. So regardless of what the Blue Jays did at the trade deadline, they were always going to need their internal guys to step up to another level. And now that becomes the entire focus as they look to improve offensively. It's a bit of a weird market just in general. And you were kind of hearing this in the lead up to it that like, man, it's weird. And, you know, there's not a lot of inventory out there. And, you know, I think a lot of people with a lot of teams were hoping that a late seller would emerge or one of the clubs that has a lot of talent that's underperformed would say, all right, we're going to start moving pieces and that things would shift. And I just don't know that they ever actually did. And it just ended up being extremely underwhelming on the position player side as well. When you're looking at a market where like the biggest bats that moved are Jamer Candelario and like, I don't know, Carlos Santana. I mean, it's just, these aren't really impactful pieces. Guys have a nice seasons, but you look at all the names that we talked about in the lead up to this Teoscar Hernandez, as you mentioned, Lane Thomas, Tim Anderson. I mean, a, a bunch of guys who did not move and did not end up being traded um i think that mlb's playoff structure has a lot to do with that going into deadline day there were 21 teams that were either in a postseason spot or within five games of one so you look at that parity and there aren't a ton of natural definite sellers in that picture a lot of teams who felt like they could still make a run or they could take kind of like the half pregnant approach that you sort of saw with like seattle or or boston you also look at a pretty weak free agent position player class upcoming this winter and that is connected directly to the quality of the position players who are going to be available on the preceding trade market that's part of it so like you said the blue jays were motivated to do more and they were trying to do more and like you said they had dialogue with the mariners on teoscar hernandez and couldn't line up there they had dialogue with the mets on a canna and a fam and with the canna i just don't think that the blue jays and mets lined up on on value and i think the mets preferred what they had elsewhere on fam i think the blue jays had some questions about how he would fit into their culture in their clubhouse to be fair but like Ultimately, and let me know if you disagree with this, I don't think that after the DeYoung acquisition around the middle of the day on Tuesday that the Blue Jays got particularly close on anything or that they had like anything on the table towards the deadline as 6 p.m. was nearing where they're like, mm, are we going to do this? Like, ooh, like this is something that maybe we could extend ourselves for. Like, I just don't think they ever got close on accomplishing that goal of adding an impactful right-handed bat. Yeah, that's my understanding as well, is that the DeYoung deal got done around 11 a.m. Eastern and uh, it was announced around 2 and really... Uh, from 2 p.m. until the 6 p.m. deadline doesn't seem like the Blue Jays got all that close to really making um, any more moves. It's funny because you look at the landscape overall, and this is the second year of this new playoff system, right, where you have three wild cards per league. And so the good news for Major League Baseball is that a lot of teams are in it, or a lot of teams think they're in it, and not that many teams are actually out of it. The bad news is it does, I think, detract to some extent from the trade deadline because you don't have as many sellers. And so the buyers end up really, you know, all circling around the same few teams. It's like the Mets are fueling the arms race in the AL West now if Verlander and Scherz are going elsewhere. And then the Cardinals trading with the AL East and and the Blue Jays and the Orioles who, who pick up Flaherty as they look to improve. And really, there just weren't that many sellers. So 
you know, that's one thing here. But I also think there's an element of, you know, you look around at how these GMs operate. And at a time that the Mariners and Padres are in between, and those are two of the GMs that are in AJ Preller and Jerry Depoto that are willing to kind of stand out on a limb and really do things differently the most. But those teams were right hovering around 500. So probably not positioned to be as bold as they otherwise might be. And so you end up in a situation where a lot of these GMs are really disciplined, right? I didn't see a lot of top 100 prospects changing hands either, with the exception of the guys that Matt Scott, including Luis Angel uh, Acuna, who's the brother of Ronald Acuna Jr. You're not seeing a lot of top prospects traded. And so I'm not saying you should do that, right? I'm not saying that the Blue Jays should have you know, gone all out and blown up the farm to acquire uh, one more hitter because there's a long-term consideration and you just you have to hold on to some of your prospects. But when the entire industry seems to take that approach, then you end up with a deadline that's kind of boring. You better be getting some top 100 prospects when you're trading, you know, future Hall of Famers and paying all the freight and yeah. guys who uh, yeah, who are still capable of being dominant aces. Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And like we want to talk about what the Blue Jays actually did, but we might as well just stay here right now because like in terms of what they didn't do to me. Like the big miss to me was Mark Canna. Like that's the guy who I feel like the Blue Jays should have done more to try to acquire him. It feels similar to like David Robertson at last year's deadline where I was looking back on what he went for and I was like, the Jays couldn't beat that, you know? Um, Canna went for like the type of sort of double-A back end starter prospect type that the Jays used in the Hicks deal. And maybe they got to a point where they they felt that they didn't want to subtract anymore from what is honestly like a need for this organization is just that optionable capable number five number six starter who you can call up when like Alec Manoa needs a month in the minors they didn't have that this year and they're going to need that going forward I don't know how sustainable it is that you're only going to be using six seven eight starters in a season going forward you have to expect that you're going to get back to the norm of needing 10 11 12 or more starters so maybe they didn't feel like subtracting like a uh like a, a chad dallas or a jimmy robbins or whoever like the equivalent would have been but to me like i just i think the canha is the guy who would have been a really good fit for what they needed on the field good fit for their clubhouse probably a good fit for accepting that role and then there's also obviously the teoscar hernandez situation and look there's a reason why we were all talking about teoscar hernandez in the lead up to the deadline like there there was dialogue there there were people within the blue jays clubhouse who like wanted the blue jays to get teoscar hernandez thought it was a very real possibility the blue jays could get him i think that when push came to shove there like the mariners just wanted a return that was I don't know, excessive isn't the right word, but was just well beyond where the Blue Jays would have been comfortable going because you look at, like, optically, as the Mariners, if you are trading this guy back to the team, like, you acquired him from the Blue Jays for, you know, a prospect who will see what he be- what becomes of him, but a very good leverage reliever as well. And if you are trading him back to that team in exchange for an underwhelming return, it's a really bad look. So I just think that the ask from the Mariners was just well beyond what the Blue Jays would have considered reasonable and what they would have done. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the the read at this point. And um, you can understand that from the Mariners standpoint, too, especially, you know, they're above 500. They're, you know, in the mix, at least. And that's the product of this three wildcard system. The Mariners do have some sort of shot to be able to contend. And so if you're going to trade Teoscar Hernandez anywhere, you have to really like the return. 
probably a bit of a surtax for the for the Blue Jays if they were going to be that acquiring team. I agree, Canna would have been a good fit. I think Fan would have been a good fit. I understand, you know, there's the whole thing. He slapped Jock Peterson in the face over fantasy football. Not great, not endorsing that. But at the same time, you know, you need to have hitters on your team that can help. And I thought he could have helped um, the Blue Jays. And, you know, it's funny, like you look at the prices I don't think it would have taken Ricky Tiedemann to get Mark Canna, you know, <laughs> like it, it's and and this is a credit to the Blue Jays in the sense that when I look at what they gave up to make the additions that they did make, I don't think that those were unreasonable prices that the Blue Jays paid. And especially for DeYoung, with the Cardinals paying half his freight and trading a relief prospect, which is arguably an oxymoron to begin with. And then, you know, you end up with a pretty decent shortstop, which we can get into in a second here. But then for the return on Hicks, too, like maybe Robertsa and Hoffenstein become, you know, Steven Matz and Ross Stripling in five years' time or in three years' time. And in that case, the Cardinals have absolutely destroyed the Blue Jays in the trade. And the Blue Jays are sitting there from a war standpoint, from a years of control standpoint. And the Blue Jays are like, yep, the Cardinals won that trade. And everyone agrees. But at the same time, this is the season in front of you right now. And there's a case to be made for trying to win the year that you're in. And from that standpoint, I really liked that trade for the Blue Jays. They're never going to win it by war. But Hicks can end up pitching some crucial innings for this team. And that's more important than the 2027 war leaderboard. And that trade, like it'll be interesting to see how that looks based on whether Jordan Hicks is a Toronto Blue Jay in 24 and beyond, whether they can extend him. And I think it will also be interesting to look back on that trade, depending on if the Blue Jays have this like need for a back-end starter again next year, which I would expect them to, because I would yeah. expect 30 teams to, and whether or not they're able to fill it internally uh and if they aren't and sam robersa is like you know is up and you know throw into a 4-2 era and five and diving um it's gonna look a certain way the other thing with what they didn't do or what they may not do is like we heard directly from ross atkins that they do not love the options on the dfa market right now so we're talking about guys like nelson cruz who i, I know you've talked about they've had interest in him in the past but trey mancini is out there right now colton wong I think the Blue Jays have been pretty clear that they prefer their internal options to guys like that. And these the the DFA players are individuals who the Blue Jays had dialogue about like weeks ago when they anticipated that they were going to be DFA'd. Like they could have made a trade for them if they felt really strongly about them. But Blue Jays prefer what they have internally and it's been an interesting couple weeks of uh buffalo bison's games seeing spencer horowitz getting a start at second base and addison bargers oh, wow. and yeah you know I didn't, yeah. No, I didn't see that interesting mm -hmm. launched in the year right center field almonte and ortega back in this ball is gone is this a carbon copy of thursday or what spencer horowitz has now seven home runs this season Three of those home runs have come over the last three nights. And it's uh, Addison Barger playing right field. David Schneider, Davis, excuse me, Schneider is playing first. Um, it's pretty likely we're going to see some of these guys at the big league level. We've already seen Horowitz, and we've already seen how, like, the uh, sort of disciplined advanced feel for the strike zone and the contact oriented bat plays. Barger, like, as toolsy 
as they come. Obviously, some questions about how the swing transfers as you continue to face better and better opposition and questions about his elbow, which he missed time with already and could need a procedure on this this offseason. But, you, hey, you want big exit velos? You want a huge arm from the left side? That's your guy. And then Davis Schneider is like the success story of the system this year. 28th round pick, and he leads the organization uh, in home runs. Like, I'm including big leaguers. He leads the entire organization in home runs. And from the windup, the 0-1 toss. Lift in the air out towards left field, and that ball is gone. Well out of here for David Schneider. Over the screen and down Seneca Street. It's his 21st of the season. It strikes out a lot, but that really hasn't stopped him from running a high OBP anywhere that he goes and he's not on the 40 right now so it would take a move to get him on to it but his day has to be coming you think considering he's still in the organization beyond the trade deadline right now and i think the blue jays would even be comfortable calling him up without like regular playing time for him i think they'd be fine with calling him up to be on the bench and and be in somewhat of a part-time role yeah, for sure. He's having a, a great season. To be fair, it doesn't take a lot to lead this organization in home runs. <laughs> so the way things have gone, we can get into that. It's uh, pretty barren there on a, on the home run front for these Toronto Blue Jays, um, especially with Boba Shett on the sidelines, which again we'll get into later. But yeah, I think right. that um, right, you know, Schneider is someone who should get a shot. And we're getting to a point in the season, right? Okay, so it's August second as we record this. Minor league season ends in like less than a month, so. You know, and they have playoffs after that. But you're getting to the point that these guys have had some run developmentally. They've had the chance to get some at-bats. They've shown you something. Schneider's going to have to be out at the 40-man at some point before the Rule 5 deadline anyway. So it's a matter of months. He's going on the 40-man. You might as well use him and see what he can do. And, you know, especially if the Blue Jays get to a point that Bo Bichette is back and playing regularly, or I should say when, because that will happen at some point, then you have Bichette and DeYoung, and Whit Merrifield up the middle, and Kevin Biggio. So, like, what happens to Santiago Espinal there? Like, that's a whole other question. But he does have an option. So, if you just wanted to sell out for offense and bolster your bench, there's a case to be made for adding a David Schneider. Again, part-time playing time. Yeah, that's not ideal from a developmental standpoint. But there are a lot of pluses to be to be had for just being around the Major League team. And that's how the Blue Jays first introduced Alejandro Kirk to the Majors back in 2020. There are real advantages to just being around the major league team learning in that environment and maybe you're only hitting five times a week or seven times a week uh, like total at bats but you know maybe you're getting a big hit here and there and continuing your development while also helping the major league team yeah you mentioned the Bo Bichette injury which somehow hasn't even come up to this point yet but I'm curious for your for your thoughts on just how that variable like that wrench that was thrown into this deadline at the 11th hour impacted the Blue Jays strategy or impacted what they were or were not able to do um because look if I'm the Seattle Mariners and I'm already asking for a really high return for an impactful bat uh in Teoscar Hernandez and then I see your most impactful bat go down uh my ask if it doesn't go up it's certainly not coming down because I now know that you are even more desperate to uh to add offense and to replace some of that production but I mean also like internally depending on the length of absence 
for Bo Bichette. And like the Blue Jays have been purposefully very vague about it to this point. Now that we're beyond the deadline, I imagine we're going to get some more concrete details. Uh, someone told me uh, on deadline day that it's likely to be weeks for Bo Bichette. Um, but we do, I mean, we'll see. But that was, that's what I was hearing is that's likely to be a matter of weeks. We're, we're recording Wednesday, August 2nd in the morning right now. So by the time you listen to this, you will probably have heard the official missive from the Blue Jays. We don't have that just yet. But like, if you're going to be without Bo Bichette for an extended period of time, that's going to dramatically impact your win expectancy internally and how you expect to perform over the remainder of the season. And we know that like strategy at trade deadlines and how teams maneuver is very much influenced by how they project forward and how many wins they expect to have over the remainder of the season. So I, I'm curious to hear just how you feel the Bo Bichette injury impacted what the Blue Jays did in the last 24, 36 hours. I think there's no doubt it impacted things. It shifted the tone. It shifted the messaging to the public. Uh, I'm sure it shifted the messaging the teams behind the scenes. Now, it's kind of funny because the end result might have still been the same regardless. Like DeYoung was someone who I'm sure they had interest in before um, Bo Bichette went down. He's a good player. He was going to be available. The Cardinals were selling the Blue Jays. Um, and Ross Atkins said this before Bo Bichette went down on Monday night. Uh, but the Blue Jays had had more expansive discussions with the St. Louis Cardinals about other players. So presumably DeYoung would have been in that mix perhaps a Tyler O'Neill, perhaps a Tommy Edmond, that's speculation. But, you know, those discussions would have been taking place. And there weren't a lot of bats out there, legitimately. I mean, this was a market that really did not have a lot. So maybe even if Pachette stays healthy, they end up with DeYoung and they end up with Hicks and that's their deadline. But I think it still impacted how they went about things. As you said, with the messaging, they were very cautious, um, you know, as far as what went out there publicly, as, as, you're, as you're kind of outlining right there, there's a very good chance the Bobachette will end up on the injured list. Obviously, that didn't happen before the trade deadline itself, and that's fine. They can backdate it a few days if they need to. But I think even behind the scenes, right, you think about Okay, Bichette goes down. This is the night before the trade deadline. You need to get imaging done on his knee. So that's members of the front office, members of the coaching staff involved in that process. They're not just sitting there, you know, looking at roster resource and trying to figure out who the next trade acquisition can be. They're like making sure that Bo Bichette has an MRI appointment, making sure that that information is trickling to the people who need to know it and only to those people. So it's just, if nothing else, it's like that's going to impact Ross Atkins' day. Absolutely. And this is going to impact like what the Blue Jays can do for the rest of the year, because look, you're at that weird time in a season where it's like, do we do what's absolutely best for this injury to get someone back to 100 percent? Or do we look at the reality of we got 55 games left or whatever it is? Can we get this guy back to like 70 percent because he's really important and get him out there and give him DH days and like get him playing because he's massively impactful on our lineup. Like we're there. We've seen it in recent years. With George Springer, the guy played with like a friggin bionic arm last year. Have you ever seen a brace like what George Springer was wearing? Uh, because he needed a procedure. He needed to get the like chunks of bone that were rattling around in his elbow out of there. So that would also impact your win expectancy if you're saying, yeah, okay, we're going to get Bo Bichette back in like three weeks, but it's going to be like 70%. Bo Bichette, and he's going to be 
compromised and he's not going to be able to like play at shortstop every day. He's going to be DHing, which is going to be impact our, you know, lineup construction and impact have a trickle down effect on other players. And we're going to have Paul DeYoung in there every day, who is a fantastic defensive shortstop, but I probably don't need to tell anyone, like it's not exactly been an offensive threat for the last couple of years. And I think that like, as you aptly raised earlier in the podcast, the price, the Blue Jays paid for Paul DeYoung, like the acquisition cost tells you a lot about where he's at right now. So that would impact things as well. Like it's just, it's, it's such a massive variable and it's such a, like, it's something we've almost taken for granted over the last three years is that Bo Bichette will just be in there every single day because he has been third in games played uh, since 2021, second in defensive innings at shortstop since 2021. This guy has posted, this guy has played a ton. He's produced 13 wins above replacement since 2021. That is up there with the Turners and the Swansons and the Bogarts. I mean, he like this is a really, really big piece, a really productive player for a lineup that has been shy on guys producing to the level that Bo Bichette has. It puts even more pressure on a Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and George Springer and Alejandro Kirk to raise their level of production because if they don't and you remove Bo Bichette from this lineup, you're going to need to really hope that pitching and defense wins championships. Yeah, Bo is just such an important player to this to this team. And, you know, you think about the production and it's, it's there's such a good hitter, such a good hitter and really has become a better defender too. So, you know, we, we've talked about Bo all season, his entire career. He's, he's a great player. He's central to everything the Blue Jays are trying to do. And part of what makes him great is he really, really likes being on the field. <laughs> and so you kind of raise an interesting point there. Like, hey, so we haven't heard from Boba Shetty. He hasn't spoken uh, publicly since uh, leaving the field on Monday. I assume we'll hear from him pretty soon. But uh, he is someone who really prides himself on taking the field. And so, you know, your point is an interesting one where it's like, you know, he's going to be pushing to get back probably sooner than he should. And so it's going to be on the Blue Jays to keep his best interests and keep the team's best interests in mind and make sure that he doesn't come back after like, you know, I'm just throwing numbers out here. This is speculative, but like he doesn't come back after 10 days when he needs 20, because if he needs three weeks, he's going to be trying to come back after 10 days. <laughs> That's not good for anybody. It's better to have Paul DeYoung. This is why you got Paul DeYoung. And, you know, he's not a great offensive player, but he still has 13 home runs. This one driven toward right. Suzuki going back toward the well. That ball is into the basket. DeYoung hits a two-run homer the other way. That's like kind of the same as Matt Chapman and George Springer and like some of these guys who are supposed to be mashers on the Blue Jays and Paul DeYoung is out there with 97th percentile outs above average at shortstop. So you say he's not a great offensive player and I agree with you, but neither are a lot of the players in this Blue Jays team. So he kind of like he could hit fourth, you know, like I'm not saying he will. He'll hit eighth, but like, you know, he's he's not a zero. You got problems if Paul DeYoung's hitting fourth, Ben. Uh, the Jays have problems. <laughs> the context of DeYoung's career, like, it's it's been so wild. Like, last year, he was devoted to AAA, and it wasn't just, like, a two-week get-right thing. He went down for several months. Hmm. Like, it got to that point. The fact that the Cardinals got him back to the point where he had trade value 
is surprising if you had looked at where his career was at this time last year, even entering spring training, like there was question as to whether he was going to be on the Cardinals roster. It's a credit to him that he's like gotten his offense back to a place where he is like a little bit below a league average hitter. And like, like yes, like he's had success against lefties this year in a very small sample. Like we'll, we'll see how that plays out over like a, a bit more runway. Um, and look, the defense is the calling card it's very like matt chapman-esque and how reliable it is like just how steady of a defender he is how he makes really tough plays look a lot easier than they are like those outs above average ranks don't lie like it's not just this year that DeYoung has been among the like top 10 percent of defenders in the league like you can go back several seasons this guy has been very steady very dependable good range at short not the strongest arm but like just a a very sound defender and the Blue Jays have had very good defense this season so they're almost kind of like doubling down on the run prevention side of things with this but look if you're the Blue Jays like you feel a lot better in a world where Paul DeYoung is your upgrade on Santiago Espinal rather than your replacement for whatever period of time for Bo Bichette. Yeah, right. Exactly. And and Espinal has been playing short the last couple of days. We know that his defensive metrics are quite poor by the objective metrics, such as outs above average, fan graphs, defensive metrics, baseball reference, defensive metrics, all have Espinal as a below average second baseman this year, um, which obviously is an easier defensive position with the shorter throw. So yeah, I mean, to me, to my eye, Espinal has had a rough year defensively as well. So uh, you want to find ways to just improve your floor, raise the floor. That's what DeYoung does. And uh, there's no replacing Bo Bichette. But DeYoung is someone who can help this team for as long as Bichette is sidelined. And then even afterwards in a different role. Just to tie a bow on this before we step away. I mean, the Blue Jays have gotten to the point right now where they're whatever, 10 games over 500. And they're at you know, second or third in the wild card race with pitching and defense yep. like their offense just has not despite good hard hit rates and really good discipline at the plate and the walk and strikeout numbers are encouraging like all that stuff like that just hasn't converted into runs for one reason or another and we're getting to the point in the season where there's just so little time remaining like you can't expect that the running runners and scoring position production is just going to be like a tidal wave and it's all going to come back at once they may just not have enough time for that to truly normalize it may just be just this weird season with runners in scoring position for whatever reason. We're all going to write pieces about that later this year, depending on how this all plays out. But it's been pitching and defense that has gotten them to this point. It's been run prevention. So the Blue Jays are going to need to maintain that over the remainder of the season and then look internally for like players like Alejandro Kirk, George Springer, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who have clearly Dalton Varsho, way more upside and way more potential to perform better, to really perform better and to really perform to their potential. Otherwise, you're going to need like you know, David Schneider to show up and rake, you know, Barger Horowitz, whatever. Like this is the team. Like this is the organization. This is who you have now. So you're going to need that pitching, that defense, that help to continue. And then you're going to need like much better production internally on the offensive side for things to go well here, which is a, a totally possible outcome, which is totally on the table here. But like that's 
what's going to need to happen. And this deadline, if anything, just bolstered strengths of the Blue Jays that already existed. Yeah. Already had a strong bullpen, already good pitching, already good defense. They have just reinforced those and uh, did not add to what has been the weakness of this team and we're not able to address that that's a good point yeah so if anything we might expect more of these uh low scoring games for the blue jays where you know their pitching really does the job the jays pitching by the way number one in the american league in era number two in baseball so they've been really really good like that's obviously it's elite there are 30 teams some really good teams the blue jays are second in all of baseball but yeah they didn't help their offense so that's gonna have to come internally you know, I think just zooming out even further, I think this is a good team. I, I still think that um, they missed some opportunities against Baltimore in the first couple of games. They absolutely can't lose the next two against the Orioles um, if they want to have any chance at the division. But the Jays are a good team. I don't see a whole lot of teams in the American League that are notably better than the Blue Jays. Um, Houston, Texas, certainly on that list. Baltimore on that list. But the Jays are, are a good team and they had a chance to be a little bit better, but um, they're still a good team as they move ahead here. Yeah, my uh, my favorite stat when it comes to relievers is strikeout minus walk rate. And yep. the Blue Jays going into the deadline had the best bullpen in strikeout minus walk rate in baseball. So absolutely elite. And then they added Jordan Hicks. Uh, it's it's kind of wild. So uh, we should talk about Hicks and what he's going to bring. And we should also just talk about what's going to happen next and cast it forward for the Blue Jays when we continue on at the letters. Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It continues on At The Letters, Arden Swelling and Ben Nicholson-Smith. And Ben, this is a question that has been rattling around in my mind ever since uh, the deadline passed last night. Who among the American League East teams had the best trade deadline <laughs> oh man um let's start with who didn't not the yankees they yeah not yeah i'll just leave that there not the yankees not the red Sox. not the orioles it's the rays or the jays and it's not interesting it is it <laughs> is um because the jays didn't have a great deadline um yeah they had an adequate deadline it wasn't great <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll say the Rays and Jays are tied. They're both in like that C plus B minus range. Like no one in the AL East had an A plus deadline. I'll say that. But I think just if we just look at the vacuum of the American League East, like I honestly think the Blue Jays had the best deadline of the five AL yeah, East. That's teams, reasonable. Really. It, it, like it depends what Aaron Savali like becomes. Yeah. Because like I would not be the first time that they went out and got a veteran starter who's been so so and then we're like, oh hey, do this and that, and all of a sudden you're an ace, right? Yeah. So that is very much in the realm of possibilities. Are you talking about the Rays? And if that happens, the Rays had the best deadline in the AL East. But when I just look at it on paper, like yeah, people know how much I like Keenan Middleton. He goes to the Yankees. I think that's a great addition. I think the Yankees need to do a lot more. The Orioles get uh, Flaherty and like, you know, Jack Flaherty is a really good pitcher. The Orioles needed pitching, but this is a deadline when a lot of really good pitchers moved and the Orioles needed more than just one really good pitcher. They needed to do more in terms of starting pitching and there was inventory out there and they didn't. 
So to me, that's not the best deadline yeah. in the division. The Red Sox are just not even in this conversation right now. They come down to the Blue Jays, who like had a closer go on the IL and a star shortstop who like very likely to go on the IL and replaced those two in very meaningful ways with uh, you know DeYoung defensively. Certainly, you're never going to replace Bobuchet's production, but at least they got somebody who can play there every day and make you know make the outs that need to be made, which wasn't really you didn't have that <laughs> internally uh, prior to the deadline without Bobuchet, and then with Romano, I mean, you add Hicks who throws as hard as anybody has pitched and leverage has been a closer and and the blue jays are optimistic that romano's stint on the aisle is going to be uh, a minimal stint or at least not too far beyond the 15 days and then he comes back and all of a sudden like jordan hicks is a pretty incredible eighth inning arm uh and by the way Ennis cabrera has looked really good for the blue jays as well we'll see if that continues but another good addition to a bullpen which now is looking at like maybe not having room for a jay jackson who has been absolutely tremendous and there is no longer a mitch white kind of eating up a spot in that bullpen and you're unable to use him because you can't really trust him in any kind of situation like i just think that when you look at just the context of the American League East, the Blue Jays had the best deadline in this division. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And I would say, you know, I don't think a lot of teams really had A-plus trade deadlines. You know, I think that given where they are, probably the Mets had an A-plus trade deadline. Like, this is not a team that's had an A-plus season. They've had a really, really bad season. But given where they are, I like what the Mets did, flexing their financial muscle to basically buy prospects um, and get rid of some older players. I think that, you know, giving it a little bit of thought as as we're talking here, I would put the Blue Jays in a B minus. I, I don't think it was uh, like it's a passing grade. Um, I think they helped their team. I, I don't think they went above and beyond and totally revamped things and, you know, had this had this amazing trade deadline. But I think it was a solid trade deadline. And I think that you're right to say that this is probably the best one in the division. And it's it's just kind of weird, right? Because all these teams are pretty good to begin with. Um and they're trying to balance the long-term and the short-term. So they don't want to go and push everything in. There wasn't a ton out there to acquire. So that's going to impact what everyone does. And so you end up in a situation where it was really competitive to begin with. And no team pushed themselves head and shoulders above the others with this deadline. And no team took a huge step back either. You know, There was speculation even within the industry that the Red Sox could do something like trading away a James Paxton. And... They did not do that. All of a sudden, you look at the standings now, the Red Sox are a game and a half behind the Blue Jays as we record this. So there is real pressure coming from Boston. That's a team that's playing really well. Tristan Cassis is on a run. He's on this wild heater right now. And this is a good offensive team that actually has some pitching too. So watch out for the Red Sox. This uh, weekend series that's coming up is sneaky huge. I mean, we've been focused on this Orioles series that's a big one in and of itself, but the Red Sox series this weekend is actually really big for the Jays and Red Sox. Put it this way. I think there are three teams in the AL West that had better deadlines than any team in the AL East. Rangers, Astros, and... Angels. Yeah, the Angels were interesting. I mean... They're going for it. They're man. going for you it. You gotta go for it. I, I think that with Shohei Otani, yeah, it, it makes some sense to go for it. And by the way, it looks like the Mets are going to be out on Otani now. So that's an interesting twist. But yeah, I think the Angels give them credit. They're trying to win baseball games. We're in the entertainment industry. I'm, I'm not going to hate on a team that's trying to win. And Shohei with a drive. 
himself to Canada with his 39th home run. And here's where that gets interesting for the Blue Jays is that, look, the Blue Jays have lost first two games of this series against the Orioles. Who knows? Maybe they salvage a series split. All kinds of things can happen over the remainder of the year. It's getting harder and harder to see them as legitimate contenders for an AL East title. Crazy things happen. We have to accept that there is obviously a chance. But it's looking like the Blue Jays are in a wild card race towards the end of the season right now. You'd love to have home field advantage and have that first wild card spot. We'll see. You know, I think most realistically, the Blue Jays likely land somewhere in the second or third spot, or elite battling for one of those two one of those two positions in the West. I mean, you got three teams that I think got a lot better, and only one of those teams can win that division, right? So, say it's Texas. Now you are contending with Houston and the Angels, who are four games above 500, just added a bunch of depth and talent. Mike Trout's going to return at some point. They have the best player who's ever played this game on their roster. Like you're now contending with two really tough teams from the West for playoff, you know, for wild card position. And like you're out of opportunities to directly impact Houston and to directly impact the Angels. Like you don't play those teams anymore. Not to mention the Rays are still kicking around. They hold the first wild card spot. They banked a ton of wins yeah. earlier this year. You mentioned the Boston Red Sox as a legitimate threat. Um, the Yankees, I don't know when you ever feel comfortable writing off a team like that with as much talent on their roster as they have, certainly on the pitching side. It's looking unrealistic for them this year, but we'll see. Let me know when you're comfortable writing off the New York Yankees going into September. I am. All right? Yeah. Ben's ready? <laughs> yeah. I'm writing them off. They're done. We're still looking at a really competitive race. Yes. Coming down, right, for the Blue Jays in the wild card standing. So, like, while I think the Blue Jays had the best deadline in the AL East, don't think they had the best deadline in the AL wild card race. And that's meaningful. Yeah. And credit the Astros and the Rangers for actually going for it. I mean, it's such a contrast to the, to the Twins and the Guardians who, you know, it's like, what a uninspired division race that is by comparison and I loved seeing Verlander and Scherzer like it was cool they're in the Mets you know they're reunited but it never seemed and this is obviously like big time speculation here just never seemed like those guys really liked each other that much and I kind of love that now they're on these two separate teams. Like, I think that that's like, you got these great aces, these Hall of Famers. I think it's actually better if they're going up against each other. The Astros and the Rangers separated by half a game in the standings. Like, that's a great race. That's like a, that's the fun part of the deadline right there is when you have those two teams just going back and forth and getting better with these future Hall of Famers. Sneakily, another reason why this deadline in general across MLB was kind of underwhelming as well is the divisional structure. I don't know if anybody needs me to you know go on and on about how I want to abolish divisions again, but the fact that you had so many teams close to like with realistic odds to get into the postseason, 21 teams either in postseason spot or within five games, that's partly due to the divisional structure. If you just took I'll even give you, you can keep your dumb American League, National League, fine, but just order them one through 15. If you did that, I think you would still, you would have more sellers because you wouldn't like, you wouldn't have teams that like, you know, still feel like they have a realistic shot at their division, even though they, they aren't contenders in the wildcard race at all. I think you're right, but I think MLB likes having more teams in it and likes having fewer sellers because it means that you have, I mean, you look across baseball at attendance this year, the numbers have been great. And part of that, you know, maybe is connected to the pitch clock. Part of that is also connected to these teams are in the race. And I think MLB loves having teams in the race. So if that means fewer sellers at the deadline, I think the league is totally fine with that. 
yeah, no, it's more markets that are staying engaged right to the end. More tickets sold, more people watching. Uh, yeah, it's good for business, certainly. Uh, we should talk about Jordan Hicks because, like, this is a actually really um, meaningful addition. Like, you want to talk about like one of the probably the splashiest name that moved in the AL East, certainly. Yeah, we'll see how impactful it is. But like, it's a guy who throws 104, and it's a guy who has like a, a slider with a near 60% whiff rate. A guy who's when he's on is as nasty as anyone in possible in baseball i had talked to uh, a blue jays hitter who's faced him before who shall remain nameless and said that like i never saw his fastball he threw me fastballs on the plate and i literally my brain could not process it because it was so fast so like it is just such an uncomfortable plate appearance when you were facing this guy like you really gotta sell out when it's 104 when it's moving that fast and then yeah he flips up that sweeper and makes you look absolutely foolish and here it is from hicks he got him three days in a row jordan hicks seals the deal for the cardinals who like the the stuff is obviously phenomenal like the fit makes a lot of sense a couple of like ancillary factors i think are really important here number one this allows you to ease off of an Eric Swanson in leverage and a Jimmy Garcia and a Tim Meza entering the deadline. Those three guys were among the league leaders in appearances. They were all on pace for like 75 appearances this year. Last season, only 10 relievers made over 70. And the Blue Jays had three this year who were on pace for 75 before you even get to the postseason. So the Blue Jays needed to ease off the workload there and have another option in leverage. And so I, I think that will be meaningful going forward because I expect Jordan Hicks is going to pitch a lot. Uh, and that's kind of the other ancillary thing here is like Hicks is actually, for a guy who throws as hard as he does, he's relatively versatile and he has a lot of utility to a roster. He can go two innings. Like there's no hesitation there. He can go on back-to-back days, ask somebody with the Blue Jays and said, yeah, no, we'll use him on back-to-backs. Like I think that Jordan Hicks is actually going to pitch a lot. When you think about relievers who acquired at the deadline, you're sometimes thinking like, oh, yeah, maybe we'll get like 15 to 18 innings out of them the rest of the way. I think the Blue Jays could get like 25 innings out of Jordan Hicks the rest of the way, maybe even approaching 30, which would just be absolutely huge for a number of reasons. Yeah. And the bullpen is gassed for sure. I had some, you know, scouts say like, Hey, you know, Swanson in particular, it's like, Whoa, this guy needs a break in the opinion of some neutral observers um, who are watching the Jays and other contenders. And so Hicks helps on that front. And even if he pitches, say for argument's sake, it's 22 innings. Well, six of those innings might be down the stretch when the Blue Jays are playing their highest leverage innings of the season. And they are trying to clinch, you know, they're playing the Rays in September and they need to win in order to get home field for a wild card. Hicks is on the mound. Maybe he's setting up for Jordan Romano. Maybe he's closing it down. He can be one of those guys who's getting those outs with that big fastball. So I think that's huge. And then remember too, like, it's not just, and I know obviously you and I have talked about this a lot, but you know, to anyone listening, it's not just about getting back to the playoffs because that should be the starting point. This is a team that's spending at record levels. They have a strong core in place. This team is built, of course, to get to the playoffs. And that's not easy, but it's built to get to the playoffs. And it's also built to ideally win in the playoffs. And you need guys like Jordan Hicks who can help you do that. And to win four playoff rounds is not easy. They have some really good starting pitching that's fully capable of pitching this team 
uh, deep into October, but you also need good relief pitching. And the more of that you have, the better. There is never enough of it. Jordan Hicks absolutely helps on that front. The other thing when you're requiring a reliever at the deadline is it's very important to get someone who is pitching very well right now. Yep. And this is going to sound funny in, you know, for people who saw his first outing with the Blue Jays on Tuesday, which did not go well. Totally admit that. That notwithstanding, Jordan Hicks, since you know, basically since the calendar turned from April to May, has been absolutely elite and absolutely dominant. Made a little change on the rubber, moved to the first base side of the mound. That's clearly unlocked some things for him. He talked in more general terms about changing his mentality and his mindset when he comes in from the bullpen, like some of that sort of, you know, reliever jujitsu, some of that dark magic that uh, none of us will ever understand, but is like a very real thing. If you talk to guys like Jordan Romano and Eric Swanson and Jordan Hicks about this stuff, um, that's, that's really worked for him. And he's pitching really well Right now, like I said, that outing on Tuesday notwithstanding. So that's huge because like this guy's impact is going to be concentrated into 25 innings. So like you need them to be 25 really, really good innings, especially considering like the price that you paid to acquire him and two like decent pitching prospects who could have been, you know, back into the rotation optionable starters for you as soon as next season. Uh, I think that's an important thing as well. And look, like there is real risk in this deal. Like the Cardinals have already won this trade. The Cardinals like great job <laughs> by them. They've, they've acquired a couple of useful starting pitcher prospects for a guy who was 20 innings away from free agency, right? So they've already won. There's a chance this deal ends up blowing up for the Blue Jays. There's a ton of volatility. There's a ton of risk when it comes to acquiring a relief pitcher, especially one who has had command issues before and who throws as hard as Jordan Hicks does. Like there is absolutely risk here and it could blow up. It could look bad. This could be a deadline move, which by the way, like this is one of the more aggressive rentals, probably the most, uh, the biggest splashiest rental acquisition that Ross Atkins has picked up as GM of the Blue Jays. It is a bigger deal than Joaquin Soria. It's a bigger deal than Brad Hand. Yeah, Brad Hand by far. Um, Taiwan Walker is another one. I would say this is the highest cost, is the highest impact. But still, there's a ton of risk. And like, it might blow up. And you know what? If it blows up, I still think it was a good deal. Because you're trying to win a World Series, and Jordan Hicks helps you in that front. So, you know what? I like it. I like it. But I want to acknowledge at the same time, this could look like a really bad deal. This could be a deal that the Cardinals end up winning by a big margin. But that's... That's the risk you have to take on because if you try to win every deal on a spreadsheet, you don't end up with the reliever who who throws 103 and you want the reliever who throws 103. Yeah, you could look at the first uh, 14 outings of the season for Jordan Hicks this year to see like the volatility at play here and the risk yeah. and like how bad things can look for a reliever. Brad Hand's a great example. He's a guy who like the only time he has been completely unpitchable <laughs> has been when he was a Toronto Blue Jay in that very brief window and the Blue Jays ended up having to DFA him after trading him for, the, for him at the deadline and then he just went back to being Brad Hand and being a totally reliable major league reliever. He just moved again at this deadline. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, you look at that April for Hicks, it was like 14 appearances appearances and like a seven and a half ERA like opponents hit 300 against him as you said command of the strike zone is completely inconsistent the strikeout minus walk was like 11 percent the ground ball rate wasn't there and Jordan Hicks is a guy who always generates a lot of ground balls so that's a possible outcome here absolutely if you're the Blue Jays Ben like as you mentioned you pay a high price there's a lot of risk here Jordan Hicks is as we sit here right now a rental do you try to maybe change that equation a little bit by extending 
Jordan Hicks. And by trying to get him under contract for 24, 25 beyond, we know that Hicks had extension discussions with St. Louis Cardinals, didn't get to the finish line on those quite obviously. And he's very close to free agency and still just 26. So you'd think that there's going to be something pretty tasty for him out there on the market, just considering the stuff that he has and his age. But he's someone who like has the Cardinals flirted with using him as a starter in the past. And um, yeah, I don't know if that door is still open or not, but it's like relatively recent history that this is a guy who the Cardinals are thinking about as a starter. Do you wonder if, the Blue Jays could extend him, try to go down that road and or try to just let him be like Jordan Hicks today where it's like, hey, two innings at a time, throwing gas, high leverage, closer if you need him. How do you feel about the Blue Jays extending Jordan Hicks? I'd be open to it if I was the Blue Jays. I think there are prices where, you know, that would make sense. I think the most realistic outcome is you just play it out and you see what happens and, and he reaches free agency, which he's a couple months away from and typically players want to uh, test free agency when they're that close. So probably uh, unlikely, but as far as an openness standpoint, there are prices where if you're the Jays, you would do it. And, and, you know, like to me, if you can get Hicks for, I don't know, like this wouldn't happen, but like if you can get him for 21 over three, well, yeah, obviously you're going to do that. Um, (laughs) You know, he might, if he has a really strong finish, uh, he might be looking at 85 over five, right? Like I don't, I'm just throwing numbers out there. I haven't looked at the comps. I'm just, you know, speculating here, but like he, if he's a 26 year old closer who finishes really strong and is getting outs in the ALCS for the blue Jays, like the comps become Jansen and, and Roldis Chapman. And that, that is 85 over five. So, you know, there's a big range here. I don't think you spend at the top of that range right now for, if you're the Jays to keep him off the market. And so I think that probably means he tests the market. Yeah, and I was I haven't done enough homework on it yet, just in terms of what kind of comps would be for him. And it's so tough with relievers too; like it's so fraught with risk, mm-hmm. right? So it's going to be organizations that are comfortable taking on a lot of risk that sign those extensions or free agent contracts with guys. Look at Edwin Diaz. Do you want to talk about risk <laughs> for a guy that you signed to a really big contract as a as a closer? I mean, yeah, things can go pear shaped in a hurry with relievers, so. Like I just, I'll be very interested to learn just how the Blue Jays feel about that, what they would be open to if there's a possibility there, because yeah, like if it is a true rental, this is going to be a fascinating case study over the next two months of like how Jordan Hicks performs, what kind of outcome the Blue Jays get from this season, and then what Sam Roberta and Adam Klofenstein end up being as big leaguers somewhere down the line. Yeah, and I think most, I think it's 98% chance that he reaches free agency at this point. 98, 99% chance. Um, I, I do think, you know, it's interesting though, because you look at the Blue Jays as a team, and wow, are they ever going to look different next year? And we've been talking about this <laughs> gradually as the season's gone on, but you go Hicks, Kiermaier, Merrifield, Belt, uh, who am I missing? There's another position, Chapman, right? Like there's a lot of turnover coming. So this this team, they've invested a lot in this current team. They need those guys to perform and uh, you know, before they hit free agency because there's a, a, a whole lot of transition coming this offseason. And I would say that Paul DeYoung's option pretty unlikely to be picked Agreed. up as well. Twelve and a half million dollars right now. Blue Jays already got the buyout covered by uh, by the Cardinals. So 
I don't know, look, crazy things happen, but you could add him to that list that you just cited of players that you're going to see playing for the Toronto Blue Jays over the next two months who are unlikely to be on this roster in 2024. And the Blue Jays did not acquire, and nobody in baseball did, but the Blue Jays did not acquire like that controllable position player piece who's going to be, who's going to fill some of that gap in 24. Like that did not happen at the trade deadline here. And it is not um, a particularly inspiring free agent market for position players upcoming. So we can almost just sit here right now and forecast there are going to be some very interesting off-season trades to come. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Still two months of games to play and maybe a postseason run. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe it's a World Series team. We don't know. Like there's a lot, you know, you want to stay in the moment and you want to stay with what's happening right now. But when we do look ahead to like December, January, as the Blue Jays are trying to build a roster for 2024. Like, I think this is a club that's going to have to make some trades yeah. this winter in order to augment and to put some production around the guys who are returning in a Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and a Bobachet and a Danny Jansen, et cetera. Exactly. And I think, too, like, you want to have some of those internal guys step up, whether it's Addison Barger or Davis Schneider whether it's eventually in Aralvis Martinez, Spencer Horowitz, you want those guys to contribute in 2024. There probably will be a lot of opportunity for some of those guys next year and maybe even this year. So who knows? Maybe one of the, one or two of those guys gets an actual shot in the course of the next uh, eight weeks here and can make an early impression and, and most importantly, help this team win some games down the stretch. Yes, that is the uh, short-term goal is win some more games down the stretch. Uh, the Blue Jays are going to have to do that. We're going to be here to uh, talk to you about it throughout, just not next week because uh, we're going to take a little break next week. No ATL next week, but uh, we'll be back the uh, the week following to check in on where this team is as they hit like the true dog days of summer through mid-August and then uh, barrel forward to what should be a really interesting race in September in a very competitive American League wildcard picture. Uh, but that's going to be it for this week. He's Ben Nicholson-Smith. My name's Arden Swelling. Our producers are Nick Andrade and Christian Ryan. want to thank you as always for listening. Talk to you next time on At The Letters.